I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to track through the first 35 verses here uh, this morning. This is really the first of three times in a row where we're going to be looking at the idea of Jesus's return. So we're calling it Jesus is coming back, part one. The next week we'll have part two. As we look at this, we're going to see that we should prepare for Jesus's return by building our lives on his word. Be ready for Jesus's return by anchoring your life to Jesus's word. We'll begin by reading just the first couple of verses here, Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Would you follow along as I read? Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, every fall, Americans in the Southeast partake in one of the most well-known traditions. They grab their popcorn, their snacks, they sit themselves down in front of a television, and they prepare for storm watching. Now, you thought it was going to be football, but it's not. There's, there's a hobby in the Southeast, and it's really tracking storms. From August, really, to sometime in October, people, particularly on the coast, are fascinated by this. They'll talk about it over lunch. It's just on the news all the time, and it's like, what is going on? If a storm is not here, it's coming. Somewhere out in the ocean, at some point in time, a storm begins to form, and it reaches a point where they call it a tropical storm and then a hurricane. And as these hurricanes track, they establish what they call a cone of uncertainty. A cone of, now if that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what will. The cone of uncertainty. And so there is some unimaginably horrible fate coming your way, and it's completely uncertain where or when it will hit. And so they track these storms. This is the storm tracker from uh, Hurricane Matthew in 2016. So many of you who are here at that time will remember this storm. And so what happens is the meteorologists have signs that they look for that tell what the storm is going to be like, how strong it's going to be, when it will hit, and where it will hit. But even with all of the information that we have today, with our best instruments and our best information, ultimately we cannot know for certain exactly what it's going to look like. So we have this cone of uncertainty. Well, we sit here this morning in a cone of uncertainty between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. Now, Jesus gives a series of signs that predict what his coming will look like, and yet we live in a day that we really can know some things, but there's a lot that we don't know. And Jesus, in chapters 24 and 25, prepares us for this time. Chapters 21, 22, and 23 have been a series of conflicts between Jesus and religious leaders, and they've been primarily centered on the center of Jewish religion that is the temple. So here in verse 2, when Jesus predicts that the temple will be torn down and not one stone will remain, it's a pretty sobering prediction. Everything that the Jews believe about worship changes with Jesus' prediction here in verse 2. Some 40 years, or almost 40 years after this, in AD 70, Rome will invade Jerusalem in a way that they haven't up till now, and they're going to put down a Jewish rebellion and destroy Jerusalem. They did such a complete job that the only part left remaining of the temple was literally the, the underlayment for the temple precinct. In other words, the temple itself, including its foundation, was completely destroyed, and only some outlying areas of the temple are left. So Jesus' prediction here comes precisely true. 
Well, on this day when Jesus is having this conversation, it's Wednesday. Wednesday of the crucifixion week. Two days later, Jesus is going to die on the cross, but this day, Wednesday, he's preparing for and looking forward to that day. He and his disciples are outside the city on what's known as the Mount of Olives. So they're looking back to the city, looking at Jerusalem, and they have this conversation about the temple. This view here is from the Mount of Olives today, looking back toward the Temple Mount. It's a different temple, as we'll see, than the one that they're looking at, but nevertheless, they're looking back this way. The Mount of Olives is about 150 feet higher in elevation than the city of Jerusalem, and so it's a pretty good place to stand and see what's there. Well, this same block of teaching that Jesus presents here in Matthew 24 and 25 appears also in Mark 13 and Luke 21. We call it the Olivet Discourse because it's preached or taught on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is significant in Jewish theology because Ezekiel 11 tells us that it's from this mountain that the glory of the Lord leaves Israel. That's 600 years before Christ comes. But Zechariah 14 tells us that one day God's glory will return to the Mount of Olives. And so in the minds of these Jewish men, this place, this mountain, has significant theological import. Well, as the disciples look back on the city of Jerusalem and admire it, there's one building that dominates the landscape, and it's this building, the temple. This is, of course, course not Solomon's temple, which was already destroyed, but for for five decades, some 50 years, Herod has had men rebuilding this temple. And this temple, while not quite as great as Solomon's in glory, was its own, but held held its own magnificence. Its walls were bright white, and, and, and historians tell us from a distance it could be blinding. Many of the walls and gates were overlaid with silver and gold, and so when you look back on it, it just dominated the city. The foundation stones of this temple are the size of boxcars. So when the disciples are looking back and admiring this, they're talking about how amazing the temple is. Now I imagine that these disciples, as they talk about the temple, they're also imagining themselves there. Jesus the Messiah comes in, and they imagine themselves there in the best seats in this magnificent edifice. Now, Jesus had come and cleansed the temple already, but this, temp- this, this cleansing was only temporary. He would come back, but when he came back, this temple will be destroyed because Jesus, not the building, is the center of true worship. And in this moment, as his disciples are looking and admiring this building, and then Jesus predicts this building will be destroyed, he puts his finger right on the heart of their idolatry. You see, they have elevated as Jews the place of worship over the God that they should worship. And this isn't a temptation unique to these men or this time, but we elevate circumstances and preferences over true worship all the time. For some of us, it's a, it's a style of worship, a way that we worship, and, and, and we have some level of comfort associated with that. For some, for some of us, it can even be a time of worship. We have a level of familiarity with something that we experience, and so we elevate something over true worship. But for others, it's a boat, or being out on the road somewhere and not even being present in worship. You see, Jesus enters our world, and no matter what our idol is, he comes in and he deconstructs it. He will not tolerate our idols. He accepts only complete, utter, total devotion. He alone is the object of true worship. Well, his disciples are imagined, they're asking, Jesus, when will these things come be? They're asking, Jesus, when are we going to rule? And Jesus answers a rather difficult question answer, a sobering answer. He says, I'm going to destroy 
this building? Well, then Jesus gives a rather long answer to a follow-up question, when will these things be? And this is the fifth and final section, major section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Well, we live in the cone of uncertainty, that the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, we know he is coming because he has come. But in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus prepares us for what this in-between period looks like. Some theologians call it the already, not yet. In other words, God's promises are already fulfilled in Christ, but they haven't been yet fully realized. We live in this already, we're here, we've received the gospel, but he's not yet come back. And Jesus tells us that the, his coming won't be finally realized until the signs of his return are seen, verses 3 to 14. We'll read those verses now, the signs of Jesus's return. Verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, in the fall of 2017, the Houston Astros won the World Series. Now, they were at the time were known for being an organization that built their team from the ground up through their farm system, through the draft, and they, they kind of were from being the worst, one of the worst teams in the major leagues to, to winning it all in 2017. Now, that all changed within the last handful of months. If you follow sports news at all, you know in fall 2019, one of their former players outed them for cheating. Now, their particular form of cheating was what we call sign stealing. They, they put a camera in center field focused on the catcher. They had a broadcast feed in right by their dugout, and they would signal the batters what pitch was coming. If it was a, a breaking ball or a fastball, a curve, they, they would know what's coming. Now, you gotta, you got to know that in football or baseball, if you know the signals ahead of time, you're stealing signs. It's a major advantage in this game. And so at this point, the, the Astros, knowing the signs ahead of time, had a major advantage. And so now everyone looks back on that same World Series with kind of jaded eyes and think they cheated and they won. Well, it's helpful knowing the signs ahead of time, and, and Jesus gives us the signs. And his teaching begins with the question, what will be the sign of your coming? Fair question. And what signs does he list? Verse 6, there's wars and rumors about wars. Verse 7, famine, earthquakes. Verses 9 and 10, persecution. Verses 10 and 11, deception and falling away. Verse 12, loveless religion, verses 13 and 14, the advance of the gospel. Now we can group these into roughly three basic categories, natural disasters, the famine, the earthquakes, military conflict, the wars, and the rumors about the wars. 
and then religious persecution that arises for Jesus' followers. So let's get this right. The signs we look for are natural disaster, military conflict, and religious persecution. And then Jesus is going to come back. Well, what's the problem? These are so common. I mean, they've been happening all throughout history. I mean, just track back to the time of the New Testament. Before, before the last books of your New Testament are written, Jerusalem has already been destroyed. The Romans have entered. There are all kinds of people falling away from the faith. There, there are, are letters literally written to churches where believers are falling away from the faith. So one remarkable thing about these signs is how unremarkably common they are. Yet we know, verse 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed everywhere, and then Jesus will come. So there must be more signs. There's mystery surrounding Jesus' return. Let's look now at verses 15 through 28. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I think that's a funny comment because it's hard to understand. He's like, understand, but it's kind of impossible to understand. He says, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and it never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, verse 15 introduces us to the most famous interpretive question in this passage, the abomination of desolation. I mean, who in the world or what in the world is this? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. In Daniel's book, uh, Ron read the first of three references to this, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. So we know where the idea comes from, but we don't know exactly what it means. But some 200 years before Christ, a Syrian general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes enters Jerusalem. Now, this is the time when Jerusalem is under siege, under attack frequently, and this general enters. And when he enters, he sets up in the temple an altar to the god Zeus. And on this temple, he slaughters a pig and offers it in sacrifice to Zeus. Well, the apocryphal book, 1 Maccabees, calls that moment the abomination of desolation. The Jews got so ticked off by this, they got angry enough that they actually rebelled and threw off their oppressors. And from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until 1948, for this is the only period in time where the Jews actually ruled themselves as a nation. For a hundred years, under the Maccabees, they ruled themselves. Well, this building of this altar to Zeus is known as the abomination of desolation. Well, there's no doubt that when the disciples hear this reference, they think immediately of that historical moment, idol worship in the temple. That's what they hear, but this doesn't answer the question of what the future 
abomination will be. Now, there are at least eight significant schools of thought on the identity of this abomination of desolation. Now, each of those people attempts to make a case for what their theory is. Now, I'll tell you, they're all better at poking holes in one another's theories than they are at actually building their own case. I haven't seen anyone do it actually successfully because if you read Ron, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. You read another, well, okay, that one makes sense. And you kind of go through and, and so they all are kind of disproving one another. That being said, we do know some things clearly. This abomination refers to a person, not a thing. Mark says it's a he, not an it, in his gospel, Mark chapter 13. And this person seems to represent scandalously provocative, blasphemous worship, the slaughter of a pig to a false god in the temple. So if it's not clear from the name, the abomination of desolation, it's a bad thing. This is not a good thing. There's a lot that's difficult to sort through, but some things are clear. The first is that the initial fulfillment of this passage is in A.D. 70. The Romans besieged Jerusalem for four years and then destroyed it in the year A.D. 70. But this siege is also remarkable in its own right. The Jewish historian, first century historian Josephus, described the horror of this siege as being so great that there are so many people starving to death that there are too many bodies to even bury. They can't take care of all the bodies. So people are starving, bodies are rotting, and just laying where they died. And so Jesus describes this moment. He says, when you see the armies coming, don't stop to take anything. It will be so terrible. Just run for the hills. So verses 15 to 21 are a clear reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then verse, 21, verse 22 seems to broaden the scope to the end of everything and the preservation of God's people. Verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God takes particular mercy for the sake of his people. And again, Jesus says, don't be led astray. Now, have you ever been either maybe on the water or in an open field, or someplace where you could see a lot in the middle of a storm. And when, especially if it's night, when, when lightning comes, how much space does the lightning seem to take up? Everything, right? It, it's what you, when, it, when it hits, you, 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 you unmistakably see it. It takes the entire sky. Or, as perhaps even as you drive home today, you see some buzzards or vultures circling. What do you know that's underneath that circle? Something dead. And, and that's what Jesus says. He says when when, when, when he comes, when he returns, it will be like lightning in the sky, or it'll be like seeing vultures. The vultures gather over the corpse. When Jesus comes back, it will be impossible to miss. The signals are going to be really, really clear. Now, it's hard to figure out when or where it's going to be, but when it happens, you'll know it's happening. So there's this initial fulfillment. But there's another thing that's evident. And it's a pattern that we see over and over in Scripture, and that's that there is a two-stage fulfillment of this prophecy. So if you're reading through the book of Exodus, where God leads his people, it's the great redemptive story of the Old Testament, God leads his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt to freedom. How is it that Moses leads them out of Egypt? Well, he performs a bunch of miracles. Now, the biggest of these are known as plagues, but before we get to the plagues, he performs a little miracle. He goes in and he talks to Pharaoh and he takes his staff with him. And there's a sign that he, that he performs to show that, that he is actually speaking for God. And you remember what it is? He throws his staff down, and the staff turns into a snake. Now it's writhing there in the ground, and then he grabs it by the tail, 
Don't do that at home. He grabs it by the tail, and he picks it up, and it becomes a staff again. That's an initial fulfillment. Now, that's showing that the bigger fulfillment of these plagues is going to come to pass. We see this throughout Scripture where there's some initial sign, and this, coming in, this, this initial sign shows that what's eventually going to come will actually happen. So the fact that the temple was destroyed 40 years after this, as Jesus said it would be, demonstrates that Jesus will come back. No matter how bad the world gets or no matter how dark it seems, do not doubt this truth. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he will destroy all of his enemies and fully and finally rescue all of God's people and deliver and redeem ultimately God's creation. When he comes, he's not going to forget a single person. There won't be single, one single person left behind. Everyone who knows God by faith in Christ will join Jesus in his new kingdom. So this brings us to a great moment when Jesus actually appears in verses 29 through 31. Jesus' return is visible, the visibility of Jesus' turn. Read with me in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and, the, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When Jesus returns, all earthly light will be extinguished, the sun darkened. The moon, no light. Stars fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. When Jesus appears, everyone sees him. How do the nations respond? He tells us they mourn because it's a sign that their reign is over and Jesus' reign is here. He will crush all of his enemies. Now we can theorize all we want about what his return looks like and when it will happen. But one thing is for certain, when it happens, you will know it's happening. Verse 30, we will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everyone's going to know. And then God's going to call his people home. His angels will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. When Jesus comes, everyone knows it, and all God's people go home. Well, this leads us to verses 32 to 35 the certainty of Jesus' return. Let's read verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus helps us out with a brief illustration. Now we're kind of emerging into the, we're not quite the spring, but we're kind of emerging into that time. But and he, even here in Charleston where the cold doesn't hit real hard, in fact, my daughter this morning, she said, Dad, frost, there's frost on the windshield. You know, we don't have that very often. We had some this morning. But the, so in our, in our lawn, we have warm season grass, centipede, and so this time of year it goes brown. And that's not a sign that it's dead, it's a sign that it's dormant. So the green things in the yard, they're not good because they're not supposed to be there. They're, they're weeds. 
But this time of year, what happens is things begin to warm up more, and things begin to bud and pop, and both weeds and, and good plants, and there are more leaves, more flowers, this kind of thing as we head toward the summer. The summer's coming. These things are signs. And in the same way, you look at a, a fig tree, and when there are buds, you know that summer is near. Well, this is a sign that Jesus is near when you see these things. When you see these things, you know that he is at the very gates. Well, then Jesus adds a clarifying statement. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, those words, these things, are words we've actually heard before. Look back at verse 3. The disciples say, tell us, when will these things be? Well, these things is a reference to what is just said. It's a reference to the destruction of the temple. And it's what Jesus refers to again in verse 34. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So there are two parallel conversations. One is the destruction of the temple, and the other is the return of Christ. This is a reference to the destruction of the temple. This will take place before this generation passes away. Before the disciples have passed, they will know for certain that Jesus is coming back. I mean, he hasn't even died yet, but he's preparing them for the day when he's going to be gone, the day after his death and resurrection, when his disciples will wait looking for his return. Well, if you track through your Bible to the very end, you come to the last book of your Bible, which is known as the book of Revelation. Revelation is the final apocalypse, the full revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of all things. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples named John. It's written some 60 years after this moment. This is around A.D. 33. That's written in A.D. 95. Well, by the time John writes that, the temple has been gone for 25 years. Remember, it's destroyed in A.D. 70, so for 25 years that the temple has been gone. Now, in this moment, John looks forward. He has no idea what's going to happen 40 years from now. He's standing here around A.D. 33, and he's looking forward. He has no idea what's going to happen with this temple. So imagine that you're John. And now you're an old man. In this day, you're kind of a young adult. You're walking with Jesus. You're learning from him. And it's 60 years later, and now you're exiled to an island to die, an island called Patmos. And there the Spirit appears to you, and through your pen writes these words, I saw no temple in the city. Now imagine, you're sitting here, you're Peter, James, and John, and you're hearing this story, and Jesus is having this conversation. He's saying, there's going to be no temple. Now to you in this moment, the temple is the most real thing in the world. It represents what Israel actually is. But on that day, some 60 years later, looking back, he writes, I saw no temple in the city. And then what does he write? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now two days before Jesus dies, John has no idea what is about to happen. But 60 years later, he looks back and he knows. He knows it's true. He knows that the words that Jesus prophesied have happened. The temple in Jerusalem is gone, but the eternal greater temple has come. And not only is Jesus the truer greater temple, he's the truer greater light. The city has no need of sun or moon. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The city of God is an unimaginably beautiful place lit by the glory of Jesus himself. There's no night there. But not everyone makes it to see this city. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, John writes. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, only those who know the Lamb will enter. Only those 
who know Jesus will enter. If you don't know Jesus, you're judged like the temple in Jerusalem. But if you believe that you are a sinner created by a holy creator, God, if you believe that Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived but couldn't, if you believe that Jesus died a sacrificial death in your place, if you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, conquered sin, death, and hell by rising from the dead, if you believe in this and trust in him and nothing else, then you can enter this city. Would you turn from your sin? Would you trust this message? Would you trust Jesus today? As we wrap this up, I want to look at four important takeaways from this passage. When trials and persecution come, there's temptation that comes to all of us. There's a temptation to turn away from the faith, a temptation to worry. Jesus warns against this. He says, don't be led astray. I mean, let's track back to the beginning of this passage for a moment. And and if you have your Bible, look there. Look at these verses, because he says it over and over again. I think it's important to see. So look in verse 4. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 5, they will lead many astray. Verse 10, many will fall away. Verse 11, false prophets will lead many astray. Verse 12, the love of many will go cold. And then if you look at verses 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, you see the same thing. Jesus says, don't be led astray. Anchor your life to his word and his gospel. Now, this is very concerning that people are going to be led astray. So then Jesus says, don't worry. We hear bad news and we tend to worry. And Jesus says, don't worry. There's great danger, but don't worry. Verse 6, he says, see that you aren't alarmed. There's bad news, but Jesus says, here's all this bad news. Now, don't worry about it. So how do we hear all this bad news and not worry? He gives us the answer. He says we should trust in the reliability of God's word. Look again at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. This will all happen, but my words will not pass away. I mean, earthly kingdoms come, go. Heaven itself, earth will be burned up, but God's word will stand forever. If you build your life on the foundation that is the word of God, it is a foundation that cannot be shaken. Babylon, gone. Greece, gone. Rome, gone. One day, every earthly kingdom will pass away. But God's kingdom, built on the foundation of his word, the Bible, and on the foundation of the living word that is Jesus Christ, will never pass away. You can build your life on it, you can bet your future on it, and your eternal destiny on it. God's word is eternally reliable, completely worthy of your trust. It's a foundation that can't be shaken. Then ultimately, Jesus says that we can rest in the security of God's love. Rest in the security of God's love. Well, if there's anything that'll make an American Christian nervous, it's election. The political kind gets people all worked up, and the theological type does too. Now, God's Word uses different descriptions, different terms to describe people who trust in Jesus. It calls us Christians, brothers and sisters, children of God, disciples. But here, Jesus uses everyone's favorite term, the elect. Verse 22, the elect. Verse 24, the elect. Verse 31, his elect. Well, why does Jesus hammer this note? Is it to make us nervous? I actually think it's to comfort us. 
I mean, the Baptist faith and message puts it this way. It says that election is the gracious purpose of God in salvation. Now, there are different lenses through which we can look at salvation. One is a microscope, the microscope of our experience. So is there a moment where we began a relationship with Christ through faith? It's our moment in history. And, and that's real, and it's present, and it's close up. But if you think about history, we're one small part of all that God is doing. And so sometimes God's word speaks of salvation through a telescope, through time, or how does God work through time? through the telescope of history, and our salvation began before the world was formed. Ephesians 1 verse 4, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul rings the same note in Romans chapter 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. If God loves us, if God saves us, and God keeps us, who can separate us from the love of God? Well, Paul answers this question, no one. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God himself saves us, the same God who guarantees that Jesus is returning guarantees our salvation. He guarantees that no matter what comes, he will complete his work in us. Paul says, for I am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the day we need to be ready for, it may be tomorrow, but it's ultimately the day when we meet Jesus. And God's word is sure, God's salvation is sure through his son, Jesus Christ. Who can separate you from the love of God? Paul says, no one, no power in heaven on earth. If God declares it, if God makes it, if God does it through his son Jesus, no one can separate us from God's love. So we respond to what God says because of what God has done through his son Jesus. So let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.